You know, I have to confess, as I was looking at our bulletin and our inserts here, <clears throat> and uh, uh, Josh, I don't mean this as any sort of a slight to you, but I looked at this map and I was like, oh no, is that the right location of the Sparks House? And I think it's a, it can be a little bit confusing because 47 kind of meanders a little bit uh, differently than um, those east-west, north-south roads. And so I, I, was, I was looking at that, and I was saying, oh, am I going to need to get up there and say, hey, don't trust the map. So I consulted the authority, Google Maps, right? And even then, looking at Google Maps, I realized I'm just looking at the same thing. And uh, so I had to put it into a satellite view. And I was looking for that grove of trees that surrounds the Sparks home. Well, I can, I can tell you on, on the authority of Google Maps, I should have trusted Josh. Uh, he's he's in charge of our public our our um, letting people know what's going on uh, side of this event, and um, that this is the correct location uh, for sure. Incidentally, you know, I I don't know where this came from, other than uh, Brian. You used to do a little forging out there, right? But if you if you want to know where the sparks live, all you have to do is type into your GPS. Foggy Bottom Forge. Not sure where that name came from. I know. I think I've teased you at the time that it could be, but no, but Foggy Bottom Forge is the name. If you type in Foggy Bottom Forge, it'll take you right to the Sparks driveway. Well, is it next door? Okay, well, for Pete's sake. Look for the Grove of Trees. As far as me, uh, there you go. I, I Googled it this morning. So anyways, Foggy Bottom Forge, I've always enjoyed that. Uh, I, I am getting to a point here, if you can imagine that. Similar to a map, the gospel, it's good news. That's what gospel means. But similar to a map, the gospel is good news that tells us about a final destination that is good, that is better, that is the very presence of God that we can live in for eternity. And it's not just embodied in that eternity that we're able to live in the presence of God, but the eternal life that we can receive as a part of receiving the gospel. It, it, it's a life that has an eternal quality to it. It's a life that's lived now with an eternal quality that we get to start living now and stretches into eternity. Now, of course, like traveling to a destination on a map. As we're moving along, as would have been for me if I said, well, I'm going to follow this map and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure it goes to the Sparks house. As we're moving along, I, I would have seen, okay, yeah, I'm getting there. Okay, this is right. Okay, this is the right road. We would see evidence I'm heading in the right direction. And in the same way, when we receive Christ as our Savior, what that, if that truly happens for us, it means that things happen along with that. We receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. As Romans 8 tells us, God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. We'll see the fruit of the Spirit in our life. We'll see growth in Christ. 
as, as the, the letter of 1 John refers to uh, three things that, that should be happening in the life of a person who is truly saved. They're going to have a greater love for Christ. They're going to have a greater desire for God's word. They're going to have a greater love for his body, for other believers. Now, there are other gospels out there. There are other ideas that claim to be the gospel. They're actually anti-gospels. And, and they, rather than worshiping the God of the Bible, many of them are worshiping the human spirit rather than Christ. The fruit, they would say, is, is you should be feeling total acceptance. You should be feeling personal peace over your choices. It's an I'm okay, you're okay gospel. There's no sin that needs to be paid for. We're all fine. But ultimately, one's eternal destiny and joy in this life hinges on whether their gospel map is correct. We see these truths begun to be opened up and summarized in the first verses of Hebrews as we continue to open up the book of Hebrews. And we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it states this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See in this preview of of this fuller picture that we're going to see in Hebrews. This is a preview of that fuller picture and see within it that you should make sure that you receive God's completed message in Christ. That's what Christ is. He is God's completed message. These Hebrew believers, these, these, those who were of, of the Hebrew uh, uh, race, uh, ethnic group, and, and religion, and had looked to Christ and were being convinced that Christ was their Messiah, they had learned about Christ from those that had taken the gospel from Judea outward, maybe those who, who had learned about Christ at Pentecost, or many of those that had originally taught them walked with Christ themselves. We can read about that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. It's the salvation through Christ, they says, it says, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Those who had heard the Lord's teaching and had come to Christ had brought it to these people. These believers had experienced persecution for their faith in Christ. Because to choose to follow Christ, for many of their friends and relatives, they believed was they were choosing to walk away from their Hebrew friends and family who were still waiting for the Messiah. They were experiencing great pressure themselves to walk away from Christ as their Messiah. And they seemed to be without those who discipled them originally. As we read in chapter 13, verse 7, remember your leaders Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. They no longer had those 
who had discipled them in the faith. They were to remember them. It's understandable that these brothers and sisters needed to be reminded of the fact that the gospel is steeped in their national history of Israel as God's chosen vessel before the world. The Old Testament describes God's process of unveiling Jesus, the Redeemer, the coming Redeemer, the Messiah, which is what the Christ means. Christ is simply comes from Christos in Greek, which means anointed one. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. He is Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. This foretelling is considered long ago as compared to New Testament times. And the truth was given in many different ways and at different times. Those who were told of Christ were the patriarchs the fathers of the Hebrew, these Hebrew readers. This is what the Jewish New Testament commentary contributes, extrapolating on these statements in verse 1, when it says, God spoke in many varied ways, directly and indirectly, in dreams and stories, history and prophecy, poems and proverbs. He spoke to the fathers of the Jewish people through the prophets, from Moses to Malachi, and before Moses to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he spoke to them the same message. The Redeemer is coming. And he has come in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the single, completing revelation from God. All God's redemptive truth leads to him and is for him. You know, in Acts 17, Paul is waiting for his companions in the gospel. He's waiting for them and he's in uh, the city of Athens. And he's looking around and he's seeing their pantheon of gods. And they have one statue that is attributed to, it's for the unknown God, just just to make sure they cover all their bases. And we're told in verse 21 of Acts 17, now the Athenians, this isn't those in Crawfordsville, Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He goes on to describe God as the one who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He says, in God we live and move and have our being. But the Apostle Paul didn't follow up with, so the God of the Bible is just as good as your gods. Can you put his name on that plaque? And add him to your pantheon of gods? No. He gave them an ultimatum. Trust Christ or face judgment. He says in verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. It's referring to Jesus, and we know that because of the next statement. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Paul essentially went to Athens and said, I have the final message from God regarding salvation and judgment. You must make sure you have received Jesus as God's completed message. We must be clear in our own minds and in our words. Jesus is God's only Savior. You must present Jesus as God's final message of gracious salvation from God. Sadly, Satan has always sought to cheat Jesus of the glory that he deserves. And he's cheating people out of salvation. So receive God's complete message about Jesus as well. We're told in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He's God's perfect prophet. And this he describes his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let me give you a warning, folks. And this has crept uh, dramatically more during the pandemic as people turn more to podcasts and, and popular preachers around the country when they weren't coming to church. There are a growing number of preachers in pulpits, in churches, around our nation that are spreading lies. They teach doctrines of demons, which Paul calls false gospels, that amount to cutting people off from salvation. Their words lead those who are unconverted to think that they are, or to think It doesn't matter if I am or not. Like the devil, they ask, did God really say? For instance, they ask, did God really say that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again? Essentially, they claim Jesus is only what I say he was. And anything that the Bible, in the Bible that I disagree with is hogwash. God's complete message about Jesus includes that he has the right to all things as their creator. John 1, 3 tells us this, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 reminds us, by him, speaking of Christ, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything belongs to him in the end because everything was created by him in the beginning. That's what it means that he is the heir of all things. It all belongs to him in the end because he created it all in the beginning. And everything includes everybody. Everyone belongs to him and is accountable to him. And God's question will be, what did you do with the sacrifice of my son? 
God's complete message about Jesus includes that he's the perfect expression of God. How do we know what the sun is like? How do we know that it's there? We see and feel its radiance. But don't limit Jesus to just that. Because in the presence of God's radiance, his people were in the presence of God in bodily form. Or as F.F. Bruce says, what God essentially is, is made manifest in Christ. To see Christ is to see what the Father is like. The New Testament commentary reminds us that that by referring to Jesus as the radiance of God, he's referring to the, to the Shekinah glory that followed Israel through the wilderness. The very presence of God itself, the very essence of God is manifested in the Messiah. And also, God's complete message about Jesus includes that he's the one who keeps the universe going. Not only is Jesus the word, God's message that we read about in John 1, but as the final word, his word is so powerful, it upholds the universe. Or as Colossians 1.17 puts it, in him all things hold together. Now, through nuclear physics and such, we know that there's a force that holds protons and neutrons together in the nucleus of an atom. It's called the strong interaction. We know it's there. We base rules upon it, but we don't understand it. Anymore that we know gravity is present, we base rules of science upon it, but we don't understand it. We know that what happens, something that happens when the protons and neutrons are broken apart is they go flying, and if they start breaking other protons and neutrons apart, you have a nuclear chain reaction. We've seen what happens when that happens. It ain't good. I have to wonder if that is part of what Jesus holds together by the word of his power. I'm grateful that Jesus upholds the universe. Whereas one writer says, the one who is both creator and heir is also a perfect reflection of the God who has spoken in him. Moreover, his word is so powerful that all he has made is sustained by that word. I mentioned that you must, you got to be on guard against doctrines of demons. The target is always the complete person and work of Jesus Christ. The complete person and work of Jesus Christ. There are preachers in pulpits today saying that as, even as they read this verse, well, you see, it says Jesus is a reflection of God. And look, the, the moon, that's a reflection of the sun but it's not the sun. It's just reflecting its light. And so what is often done in this type of teaching is one verse or one phrase is taken and saying, oh, see, that's all Jesus is. I, I listened to um, one uh, guy. He's a pastor in Louisville of a big church. And that's his opinion. Well, Jesus is the reflection of God. And so when I take Jesus and I look at the Old Testament, 
Anything that I think doesn't look like Jesus in the Old Testament, I just say, I don't know what that is, but it's not God. And therefore, I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And so the person starts just starts picking apart the authority of Scripture, deciding, well, this is, this is I think, what, you know, something that God wants to teach me from, but that over there, I don't know what that is. Guess what? who becomes the authority? He is. There was a king under the ministry of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had his whole prophecy, everything that he had heard from the Lord, and, and God had him write it down and had it delivered to the king. And as the king's secretary was reading it, King Jehoiakim would sit there, and he would read a couple columns, and King Jehoiakim would take his knife and tear off that portion, throw it in the fire until there was nothing left of it. And that's no different than what people are doing to the authority of Scripture. And it feels good because it makes them the authority. And it feels good for those that listen to it because what they're basically is saying, you are the authority of what's right and wrong in your life. You can know good and evil. Does that sound familiar? You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open, knowing good and evil. The same lie is out there, folks, as what was in the garden. You know, one person could look at this globe, and if they were myopic and nearsighted with it, they would say, oh, well, look at that. I'm holding a map of North America. But, you know, Elaine's looking at it, and she's saying, no, it's a map of Australia. Right? Ed's over there looking at it and said, no, it's a map of Africa. You need to understand that you have to take all the statements about Christ and look at them as a whole. Because being God, no one statement sums him up. And you need to be on your guard against teachers that take one statement, like, oh, he's just a reflection. Or he's just an imprint. You know, an imprint is what they would say, they would put wax on a letter and to seal it, they would have a signet or some sort of other kind of stamp and they would stamp it and it's the exact imprint of that stamp. Somebody would say, well, Jesus is just an imprint. You have to take the whole picture of what the scriptures are telling us about Jesus and look at it as a whole and don't let anyone steal that from you. The bottom line is this. What makes us Christians is we are Christians. Christians. And the fact that we believe in Christ is everything. Everything that God's word tells us that he is. We could add to this list that is just given here in these verses that he is God himself. That he's always been God. That he became a man who is perfectly sinless. He died a literal death for the payment of our sin in order to satisfy God's perfect righteousness. And having willingly died, he literally rose from the grave under his own unsnuffable power. That is a technical theological term, by the way, unsnuffable. And the offering to us is that we can recognize that our sin has separated us from God. 
Everything that we do think or say that it falls short of God's character. And guess what? Every single thing that I do think or say falls short of God's character. That all of my shortfall in this was laid on Christ and he paid for it. And he offers me his righteousness in its place to stand before God like a perfectly white robe. And in receiving that, and in receiving the indwelling of his Holy Spirit that he gives, as a result, I am his child. You might not be listening to preachers of this modern day good news, the I'm okay, you're okay, but your adult children might be. Your grandchildren might face it as the predominant idea. Prepare them for it. If someone is representing God, but they're redefining Christ, they are not a Christian. Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one enters the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. And then he laid it out like this. It's Jesus' words in John 13, 18. Whoever believes in him, speaking of the Christ, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. How can one be born again if they refuse to believe in Jesus as God? And if one isn't born again, they're not a part of God's kingdom. Why do you think that these teachers today would be preaching that a person doesn't need to be born again or doesn't need to believe in Jesus as the God-man in order to be a Christian? Sadly, I think it's because the preachers themselves are not born again. And there is a rise of it in our nation. I will tell you that. You should recognize that God's message is completed in Jesus. You need to make sure that you are receiving God's complete message about Jesus. And in order to be in a saving relationship with God, we must receive God's completed redemption in Jesus, recognizing he has done it all. Folks, the law which Hebrews is convincing its readers that Jesus is better, better, better. The law says do, do, do. The gospel of Christ says it's all been done in Christ. And we're told, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, you might be thinking, well, what what does this really matter, J.D.? Well, this statement references, and we talked about this last week, it references the fact that Jesus is better than the priests that were serving in the temple at the time that this was written, that these Jewish believers were no longer allowed to be anywhere near because they had received Christ as their Savior. Jesus is better because he sat down. You might be like, what? In our modern day language, that's he dropped the mic. And walked away because there was nothing left to be said or done. And we see this talked about in Hebrews 10 verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. What do the priests do? They stand daily because it's never over. What did Jesus do? He sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We've already looked at that there, were, there, there was long times past in many prophets and in many ways God spoke, but Jesus is God's perfect prophet now. He's better than those prophecies from the past. And you know, the term of some form of better than is used 12 times in the first 12 chapters of Hebrews because they're communicating within those first 12 chapters. Jesus is better than this. He's better than this. He's better than this because those Hebrew readers needed to be reminded of that, that he had finished all those things. And here we see that Jesus is the better. He's the perfect priest. As one writer says in a summary of Hebrews, Jesus Christ and the Christian life he gives us are better because these blessings are eternal and they give us a perfect standing before God. But not just is he the perfect high priest, Jesus is also the better and perfect king. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king for us. Speaking of him sitting down beside the majesty on high, which is another name for God, in the sense taking his seat again in his rightful place as a member of the triune God. Jesus spoke about this in Mark 14, where he says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Peter spoke about this in Acts 2, verse 33, describing him as exalted at the right hand of God. Or Romans 8, verse 34, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, and it says he is interceding for his followers. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, describing that angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Imagine growing up in the slums of a dying land. But then being adopted by the king of the reigning empire. And having your, the prince, your new brother, leading you through one great hall after another. Leading you through the kitchen. You're seeing the next meal being prepared, which is more food than you ever imagined existed in the world and you're told with our father being king of the land all of this is for your enjoyment the benefit comes from the royal family that you're adopted into and who they are many of the readers of this letter to the Hebrews, they were asking themselves, is it true? Is Jesus really the perfect prophet, priest, and king? Others were asking themselves, is it worth it? Should I risk so much to follow Jesus? Interestingly, there is only one sin in the first 12 chapters of this letter to the Hebrews. There is only one sin that is warned against unbelief. Unbelief. We're going to see just how close many of these readers were to following Christ or walking away from him as their Messiah. Because of this, what we believe about Jesus, it means everything because Jesus is everything. He is everything 
You know, when I was uh, growing up in this, this small school in Knoxville, Tennessee, whenever we would go on a field trip or take a class trip or something like that, we'd, we'd load up in a van and, and um, when we'd stop to eat, we kept asking ourselves, why do we keep stopping at McDonald's? You know, it's like the only place that we ever stop at. There's all these other restaurants. Until we finally put it together, McDonald's gives the van drivers, at least at that time, they would give the van drivers a free meal. So guess where that van's going? So there was this motivation of the leader. I'm going to go there because it benefits me. Be careful whose view of Jesus you are listening to. Like I said, there are a lot of teachers today that pick and choose what they give authority to and they like it because it benefits them because they get to be the authority of what's true, of what's right, and of what's wrong. And if the teacher makes Jesus less than being our perfect prophet, priest, and king, you're getting a Jesus. And McJesuses don't save. They don't lead to the indwelling Holy Spirit. I want to close with a quote from F.F. Bruce. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He possesses in himself all the qualifications to be the mediator between God and the human race. He is the prophet through whom God has spoken his final word. He is the priest who has accomplished a perfect work of cleansing for his people's sins. He is the king who sits enthroned in the place of chief honor alongside the majesty on high. End quote. Let's close in prayer.